morning. I hope everybody can hear me at the back. Just want to make sure this works. Kevin, can we have the... Okay. Perfect. All right. Thank you, Maman, for the, uh, for the reading of scripture and for praying. Thank you to the choir for, um, <clears throat> for singing that beautiful song in Christ alone. And thank you to everybody that shared this morning audibly during the, the remembrance service, because, you know, everything, all of these things are uh, just beautifully blended with what we're going to talk about today, our topic for our message. And by the way, welcome to all of you and welcome to all of those uh, watching via Zoom. Um, you know, of course, if you gathered from the, you would have gathered from the passage that was read, that uh, passages that were read, that we're talking today about uh, the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have arrived at what is the, what is a pivotal event in the, in the life of uh, or in, in scripture, really. So just for a quick recap, if you look at the, the chart that's here, this is the scheme that we started back at the first Sunday of January, and now we are almost at the end of the year. Uh, we still have about three more months to go, three and a half months. Uh, and, you know, we looked through the Old Testament. We looked at the foundational books. We, uh, we looked at the historical books. We looked at the instructional books. And now we're completing the study of the foundational books of the New Testament. And uh, we are coming to, uh, you know, we'll be proceeding through uh, the rest of the New Testament over the next uh, few months. Uh, but, uh, you know, all of these things, you know, uh, have brought us everything we've studied up to this point throughout the Old Testament, they bring us to this very important point, And that is the death and resurrection of Christ. And the death and resurrection of Christ is the, is the pivotal point in all of biblical history. It is the pivotal point in all of human history. You know, all of the scripture up to this point has pointed forward to this one event. And all of the scripture after this point looks back at this one event. And, you know, if, uh, uh, if it were not for the death and resurrection of Jesus, you know, the entire Bible would lose its meaning. If it was not for the death and resurrection of Jesus, he would have just been another great human religious teacher like Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius or, or, or Krishna or whoever, uh, you know, pick, take your pick. Uh, what makes Jesus unique is what we're going to talk about today, was that he died. He came, he's God. God died for your sins and my sins, but that he rose again the third day. That is what makes him unique. That is what makes the gospel, the, the, the biblical gospel unique uh, across all of human history. There is nothing else. There is no other way of salvation. There is no other story. There is no other history that comes even close. And, uh, you know, you all have your outlines. I encourage you to use it. So, you know, most of what you need to fill out in your outlines is going to show up on the slides. Okay. So I've, I've struck, tried to structure it that way so that you don't get confused and you can follow along in the message. But we have a lot of things to cover today. And we're going to start off, of course, looking uh, at this very point that I made, which is that this is the most pivotal uh, point in all of biblical history. And, and why do we say that, right? How, how is it? You know, how does the death of Jesus Christ or why, uh, you know, how, how can we tell from scripture uh, that all of the scriptures point to the death of Jesus Christ. So let's just look at a few points. This is more of a recap. I'm not going to go back and read uh, all the verses. Uh, you know, that would take too long. But first of all, you know, when we go back and look at the very beginning, right? Uh, you know, uh, I've already made this point. Uh, but, uh, you know, if, um, if we go back and look at creation and the fall, right? You go back to Genesis chapter 3. We find God, uh, Genesis chapter 1, God creates the world. He creates man. He puts him in the garden and what happens? Man sins, right? Man is in perfect fellowship with God. There is no sin in the world. It is a perfect universe, a perfect earth that God has created. And he has, he has given him, you know, responsibility, stewardship of the creation of the garden. He's given him that garden uh, of Eden. And what happens? Man sins, man falls. And immediately we see there 
that the very first glimpse of the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't name him. It doesn't say specifically what, but, but Jesus, when he curses the serpent, he says that the seed of the woman will crush your head. You will bruise his heel and he will crush your head. So that was the first promise that we see of a redeemer that God in his sovereignty had planned in his plan for the ages that he had planned that, that one day there would come a seed of the woman, a child of the woman, a, a, a progeny of the woman who would, who would crush the head of Satan and he would destroy uh, and remove the effects of the fall that happened there in the garden. So we see uh, that the scripture starting at Genesis, starting at the very beginning, point forward to the, uh, to the death of Christ, to the arrival of Christ. And then we see in the promise to Abraham, which we looked at in, uh, in Genesis chapter 12, you know, God promised Abraham lots of things, right? He promised him a land. He promised him uh, children. He promised him a nation. But he also promised one thing. He says, he said to him, in you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Now, how could all the nations of the world be blessed in Abraham? I mean, Abraham was, you know, one man. And yes, he would have a nation under him. But how would all the nations, not just the nation of Israel that God was going to bring through the loins of Abraham, but how would all the nations of the world be blessed through Abraham? Well, of course, it was because it is through the line of Abraham, through the people of Abraham, that, that he would bring his Redeemer into the world. The reason God called Abraham was not because Abraham was a good man. It wasn't because, you know, God favored Abraham, but it was God chose Abraham as the vehicle through which to execute his plan for the ages, right? That he was going to bring a redeemer and everything we see in scripture from that point forward was, was, was building towards the arrival uh, of this redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he made this promise to Abraham and he said that all the nations, so we see would be blessed. And we see there, you know, in the promise to Abraham, we see that the scriptures point to the death of Christ. And then we move on and we see in the Levitical sacrifices and in the life of Israel, we studied that in, you know, quite extensively through multiple messages. But what do we see here that they point ultimately to the sacrifice of Christ? I'm not going to read that verse, Hebrews 10 verses 11 and 12. But what it says is that, you know, the, the sacrifice that the priests offered, you know, they could not really take away sin. They did not really take away sin. But it says, but this man, the Lord Jesus, once for all, you know, he offered himself as a sacrifice once for all. So all those sacrifices that we saw, you know, all the bulls and goats and all that they did for all those thousands of years, you know, killing and sacrificing morning and evening and at special times of the year, the Passover sacrifice, all of those sacrifices were pointing to one thing. They did not really cleanse them from any sins because the very fact that they had to keep doing it you know, daily, the very fact they have to keep doing it uh, year after year, the very fact that they had to have a day of atonement every year, you know, meant that, you know, whatever you did last year didn't really atone for your sins. It was nothing more than pointing forward to the death of Christ. By, by his uh, wounds, by his stripes, you have been healed. He was, uh, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. Who was Isaiah talking about? You know, the Philippians, the Ethiopian eunuch, you know, he was he was traveling in his chariot uh, in Jerusalem, and, and he was reading this passage, and and the apostle Philip comes to him and he says, "Do you understand who you're reading about?" And um, and he says, "No. How can I know unless someone comes and explains this to me?" And so Philip, it says, Philip, starting with that scripture, he explained to him about who, about the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the prophet was talking there. The scripture again pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we go to uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, uh, two other prophets, right? And, uh, you know, make a note of these verses. I'm not going to go there just to save a little bit of time. But, uh, uh, you know, but, but what we see in, 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 uh, in, uh, in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 33 to 34, is that, you know, God had, had established this covenant, right? The covenant with Israel, the covenant at Sinai, the, the Ten Commandments and all those kind of things that we study uh, in some detail. Uh, but what, what he says, the prophet Jeremiah prophesies is that, is that God says through Jeremiah that I'm going to make a new covenant with you. I'm going to enter into a new relationship with you where 
you know, my law is not going to be written on tablets of stone, but it's going to be written on your heart. And then similarly, the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36 of Ezekiel, verse 25 to 27, he says that I will take away your heart of stone and I will give you a new heart of flesh and a new spirit. And, and you know, you will no longer, uh, you will no longer be forced to obey me, but you will desire to obey me. So again, it's pointing to the, the, the new covenant, the new covenant that would be ushered in uh, to history by the death of Christ. So we can see through all of these um, passages, you know, we just, I mean, there's many, many others we could look at, but this is a common thread. You remember a year ago when I, I introduced the series, we talked about the common threads to scripture, and one of them is the thread of the plan of salvation. And, and we see here how all of those things through all of the scripture and even the history of Israel, everything was all pointing towards the, uh, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, of course, when we come to the birth and life of Christ, you know, what is what you know, Christ was born, uh, and then he, he he's, uh, you know, the, the angel comes and announces his name, and he says he will be called Emmanuel. For what? Because he will save his people from their sin, right? And what did Jesus himself say? He says, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many, and he said, behold, I go to die. Right, and he says again in John chapter 3, he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Again, the Lord Jesus himself, the prophets spoke of the death of Jesus. Jesus himself, when he was on the earth ministering for those year, few years of his life on the earth, he spoke about himself dying. And then we see at the end last week, Tobin covered for us the, uh, the Passover feast, right? We see that as Jesus is in the upper room, in that uh, ministering to his disciples, the very last set of discourses to them, he introduces uh, during the Passover meal that they had every year, they were, they were having that meal and he gives it a new meaning. And he says, this is my body and this is my blood that was given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Jesus again, and, and he did that pointing towards the fact that he was going to die and pointing towards the fact that his body was going to be uh, given for the sins, was going to be sacrificed for the sins of all mankind and his blood was going to be shed for the sins of all mankind. So scripture clearly points forward to the uh, death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we keep working through this, let's look at the key events that lead up to the, uh, to the, uh, to the death of the Lord Jesus. And the first thing we see, and, I, and you know, there's, there's obviously a lot of ground that, that we, a lot of detail we could get into, but uh, but you know I'm not going to I'm not going to get into that. I think most of us are fairly familiar with the story, so I'm just going to pick a few things here and there, okay? Uh, that I think uh, will help us to appreciate and understand this better. So when we come to Luke chapter four, we see that the Lord Jesus is is ministering there in Nazareth uh, and um, in uh, in Galilee. That's been the sphere of his ministry. That's been the the location of his ministry up until that point. And here we see a, a change coming, right? So when we look at Luke chapter 9, um, you know, uh, and Jesus is teaching and he's healing and he's going all around that, that territory around the Sea of Galilee, around Nazareth, and he's teaching and healing and speaking in parables. And then we come to Luke chapter 9 and uh, verse uh, 43. Um, and let's just read that. Uh, and they were all... Um, yeah, Luke chapter 9, verse uh, 40, yeah, 43 and 44. And they were all amazed at the majesty of God. Now, what, what just happened? You know, a demonic son is uh, the, the uh, demonic son of a certain man is healed. So Jesus has done a great act of healing. And so the people were all amazed, right? Uh, they were all amazed uh, that Jesus would rebuke this unclean spirit and he would leave this, this boy. And it says, but why everyone marvel? So here are the people. So picture this, right? Jesus has been spending some time, maybe two and a half years, whatever, you know, around that area. He's he's said all these things that they were marveling at. He's done all these acts. He's healed all these people. He's raised people from the dead. He's cast out demons. He's done all these things. And the people were now at this point thinking, you know what? He is the man. He is the man. He is the Messiah. He's he's the one who is going to, uh, you know, deliver us from the Romans. Right, and what does Jesus do at this point? While everyone marveled at all the things that Jesus said, 
He said to his disciples, let these words sink down into your ears. Let these words that I'm about to tell you sink down into your ears. Pay attention. Okay, he says, ignore all of this that you're hearing from the people around you. What is it that he wanted to sink down into their ears? The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand this thing and was hidden from them, so they did not perceive it. Okay, so they did not understand what he was saying. Okay, and then when we come down to verse 51 and uh, look at verse 51 of Luke chapter 9, it says, Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. You know, here is the move to Jerusalem. You know, from Nazareth, from Galilee, from that area, Jesus, you know, with the, if you look at the, the life of Jesus, you know, he was laser focused on one thing, and that was the cross. You know, now Jesus had become somewhat popular by that point. That, you know, people were, he was getting the adulation of people, and, and that's exactly the point here, right? He says, wait a minute, you know, don't listen to what you're hearing from all these people, but listen to what I'm going to tell you. You know, that the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. And when the time came, when the time came, what did he do? Time came for what? For him to be received up, that he steadfastly, he set his face to Jerusalem. And he said, that's where I'm going. That's where I came for. That's what I came for, to go to Jerusalem, to be crucified. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he did not allow anything to come in the way of that. He started that journey by foot. And of course, there was a lot of things that happened on the way to Jerusalem, but, but he said this quote, he said, it's time to go. It's time to go to the purpose for which I came, to fulfill the purpose for which I came, which is his death. And we know that in, in Luke chapter 19, you know, we are here in Luke chapter 9, in Luke chapter 19, he enters into Jerusalem, again, fulfilling prophecy on a donkey, right? Uh, you know, on the, uh, uh, on, on what they call as Palm Sunday. And then, you know, the Lord comes to the, um, you know, the, uh, from, from the move to Jerusalem, the next important event we see is the upper room ministry, right? And in the upper room ministry, um, you know, in Luke chapter 22, um, we find here that Jesus is giving his final instructions, his final discourse to his disciples, and he tells them about how they should love each other and, and all of those kind of things. We, we've already studied some of that, but then he ends that. Uh, by by instituting the Lord's Supper, right? So so this is another event that precedes the death of Jesus. And then when you move on, you come to Gethsemane. You know, Luke chapter 22, verse 39 to 45. I'm not going to read those passages. We're all very familiar with it. I'm just trying to put it all into a little context here. So here we have Jesus in deep sorrow and anguish, submitting to the Father's will. He's, he's you know, we, 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 we read there that uh, that his, uh, his sweat were like drops of blood. He was in such anguish. You can just imagine what was going through his mind, realizing the suffering that he was about to enter into. And he says, Father, if it be possible, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy be done. Jesus submitting himself to the will of the Father. And then when we come further in Luke 22, we see the betrayal by Judas and the denial by Peter. Again, I'm not going to read the passage, but we know that Judas... Uh, one of the apostles, one of the disciples, he leaves and he, uh, you know, he's paid 30 pieces of silver and uh, and he betrays Jesus, right? Um, and then later on, right after that, Peter, uh, who God, uh, Christ had predicted that Peter would deny him and Peter said, no, 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 nothing, nothing like this is going to happen. Who, me, me, deny you? Absolutely not, Lord. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and then, of course, Peter does exactly that, right? He denies it three times and and the Lord looks at him and, and Peter is so sad. In fact, that impacted Peter for a long time. When you go to John, the last chapter of John, we find that Peter was so distraught that he called on his friends, his, his ex-fishermen, his fellow disciples and others, and says, you know what, guys, let's go fishing. You know, I'm done with this. Let's go fishing. And then, of course, we see that beautiful story where the Lord calls him back. He tells Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And, and Peter, Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you. And he says, well, go feed my sheep. And we know what Peter did. You know, that transformed Peter completely. And we're going to talk about the day of Pentecost in a later message where Peter speaks and 3,000 people come to the uh, come to the Lord, you know, come to believe in Christ. And then, so there's a betrayal of Judas and the denial by Peter. And then we see the trials, right? And again, I'm not going to go into the details of these, but you can see in Luke 22 and Luke 23, 
that he's brought to trial. There were three groups that were uh, that were holding trials. There was the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish council, the council of Jewish leaders. There was Herod, who was the uh, well, there was Pilate, who was the Roman governor, and then there was Herod, the the, the Jewish king, the king of the Jews that was installed by the uh, by the uh, by the Romans. And so he goes from the Sanhedrin to Pilate, who sends it to Herod, who sends it back to Pilate. And then finally, we know that, um, and you know, these are all sham trials, right? They brought in all these witnesses, and the witnesses were false witnesses. They couldn't even agree with each other, and they accused him of all kinds of things that, that were not true. And Pilate knows that he's not guilty. Pilate knows that, that, that there's nothing in this man. And Pilate tries, but on the other hand, there's, there's sort of a mob mentality building. And, and you know how it is. We, we have mobs here, right? When people come and start rioting, even the police can't do anything, right? They're they are afraid for their own lives. And that's sort of the situation that Peter was in, uh, sorry, Pilate was in. And, um, and, and he finally washes his hands and he says, this man, you know, uh, I, I'm not going to take responsibility for his blood, but, but he, and, and he just washes his hands and he says, okay, do, do with him what he wants. So that brings us to the, uh, the next point, the next key event, which was the demand of the crowd. And let's just look at this, uh, Luke 23. So here we find Pilate is trying hard to negotiate, you know, negotiate with the crowd and, and give them some out because, uh, you know, his conscience wouldn't let him condemn this innocent man. And, and uh, if we look at, um, uh, at, uh, at Luke uh, 23 verse, uh, verse 18, um, yeah, Luke 23 and verse uh, 18, and they all cried out at once, saying, away with him, away with this man, and released was Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellious rebellion made in the city and for murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release, so Pilate is struggling here as the governor, he's wishing to release him, but, but he can't, right? And, uh, and Pilate again, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again, called out to them, but they shouted, saying, crucify him, crucify him. Then he said to them the third time, why, what evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I would therefore chastise him. And then why is this important? It's important because we need to understand that, that, you know, they had a trial, you know, they had three trials. They went through all the evidence and the conclusion of Pilate, the judge at that trial, the, 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 the one who was endowed with all the power of Rome was this, right? That I have found no reason for death in him. Jesus was completely innocent. It wasn't like Jesus did something. He never broke a law. He never did anything to deserve this. I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him. Let me, okay, fine. You know, you want blood. I will give you some blood. I will chastise him and let's let him go. But they were insistent, verse 23, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And he, as he, and he released to them the one they requested who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison, but he delivered Jesus to them. He said, okay, fine, go ahead. Do what you want with this man. And they released Barabbas. And, uh, you know, and, and that was a demand of the crowd. And then, of course, moving on, we get to, you know, in Matthew uh, chapter 27 and Luke 22 and 23, we see the suffering and the scourging of Jesus. You know, we, we've touched on some of that. Earlier this morning, I'm not going to go into the details, but but we all know that, right? We are very familiar with that. These are portions of scripture that, that we hear, you know, quite frequently here on a Sunday morning. And we know how much suffering, how much beating, how much bruising. We know about the crown of thorns. We know uh, about how he was whipped. We know uh, how he put him in carry his cross. And we got, you know, Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross for him. We know how he was mocked uh, by all the people and by the by the soldiers. But you look at this, you know, the key events that lead up to the death of Christ. Christ set his face to Jerusalem, not just Jerusalem, he set his face to the cross. He was going to go to the cross no matter what. Why? Because he loved you and he loved me. You know, his, you know, he could have, he could have become one of the greatest political leaders of all time, you know, but no, he was there to do the Father's will. From the very beginning, he knew, you know, he set his face to Jerusalem and he went there knowing what was going to come. He did not hesitate. He did not 
He's not slow it down. He's not saying, okay, let me wait. When the time had come, Jesus went. That's how much he loved you and me because he knew that if that didn't happen, if he didn't die, then all of humanity would be under destruction. All of humanity would be without hope. And so here we are, Jesus is being given to the people. He's being taken to be crucified. And let's look at the crucifixion and the death of Christ. What are some of uh, 28? Let me start with verse 28. After this, Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished. Okay, Jesus knew that everything had been accomplished. What, what did he mean by that? What, did, what does that phrase mean? That all things were now accomplished. It means that everything that had to be accomplished, that had to be done, you know, everything that was on the on God's project plan to put it in terms that we understand, you know, with, with all the charts and everything that said everything that had to be done, you know, Christ had to be incarnated, he had to suffer, he had to go through all of this, he had to be scourged, he had to be crucified, knowing that all of these things were now accomplished, it was done, tick, 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 done, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said I thirst, now vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus, there was one more thing, okay, that was that was a prophecy that had to be fulfilled. Okay, uh, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Okay, there was one more thing to be fulfilled. He fulfilled it. And verse 30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Here is the point at which Jesus said, He completed everything. He could be there on the cross and cry out. It is finished. There is nothing more to be done. Dear beloved, we can be confident that everything for our salvation was done because you can see the very life of Jesus. You can see that this was the plan of God for God to send uh, his son into the world. And his son was so focused on this task that he went all the way to the cross and, and he did not give up the ghost. He did not give up the spirit. He did not actually die until he could save it. With, with complete confidence that the work was done, it is finished. And then the second point is the tearing of the temple veil, right? So Matthew chapter 27, uh, and this was a very important and symbolic event. Um, and I'll talk about that uh, here in Matthew 27 and verse 51. Uh, again, this is a, something we are all quite familiar with. It says, uh, so go back to verse uh, verse 40, 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up the spirit. So that means Jesus died, right? Jesus uh, cried out with a loud voice. What did he cry out? We know from John that he cried out, it is finished, okay? And he yielded up his spirit, he died. And then behold, verse 51, the veil of the temple was torn into from top to bottom, and the earthquake and the rocks were split and a lot of other uh, you know, miraculous things, unusual things happened there. The the veil of the temple, what is this veil of the temple? The veil of the temple is, you know, the temple, the tabernacle, you know, if you go back to the book of Leviticus and, and, you, and you look at it, the way that the temple, first the tabernacle and then the temple was built was there were two parts to it. There was the holy place where you had certain furniture like the table of showbread and altar of incense and things like that. And then you had the Actually, you had three parts. You had the courtyard, which had the, the altar where they sacrificed all the, the animals. Then you had the holy place, which was inside the, the tent, uh, where, where you had the altar of incense and the table of showbread, and the, the lamp and all those kind of things. Uh, and, and, and then you had the most holy place. So the holy of holies where the presence of God went. And there was this very thick curtain between the holy place and the most holy place or the holy place of the holiest of holies and that was meant to signify the separation between God and man that was a presence of God man could only come up to this point so you know certain people could be in the courtyard you know certain people the priests could enter into the holy place and, and, and literally nobody could go into the holy of holies except once a year the high priest on the day of atonement he would go in there okay he could he could part the curtains and go in there and they were so afraid, the high priest was so afraid when he went in there, that in case, and he had to do all kinds of sacrifices for his sins before he went in there, he had to sacrifice for the sins of the nation and of the people and of himself and, and all these things. And they were so afraid that that he, that God might strike him dead, that, uh, uh, you know, that they would tie a rope to him, okay? And he would go in there. 
so that in case something happened and God struck him dead, they could pull him out without another person going in there uh, and, and dying. Right. So that was that that was there is a very symbolic thing. It's symbolic of the separation between God and man. You know, you and I have no access. Nobody, if humanity has any access into God's presence. But what happened here when the the King of Glory died? When he said it is finished, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You know, the path was open. And we read about this in Hebrews. It gives us all the symbolism of it. I'm not going to go there. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, the purpose of the death of Christ was, was simply this, that, you know, that he died. You know, in Hebrews 2, 9 and 10, it says that he died. He became like one of us and he died for what? To bring many sons to glory to bring many people to glory he died so that all of us might be redeemed to open the door for us to glory and so that that's what that's what we see there in the in the death of christ and one more thing on the death of christ is a fulfillment of prophecies i'm going to go through this very quickly so what we find is that you know every detail of christ's death was fulfilled was, was fulfilled, or every prophecy about Christ's death was fulfilled when you look at uh, look at what happened there, right? So, um, uh, you know, I'm just going to list a few of them. There was, in Isaiah 53, we find the, the, the suffering, right? We, we, we just looked at that earlier. When we look at the fact that he was arrested, you know, I've listed some of the verses there uh, in Matthew 26. Uh, they talk about the arrest of Jesus, that Judas went and betrayed him. You know, that's prophesied in Zechariah. You look at the casting of lots for his garments in Matthew. It was prophesied in Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is all about the, the death of Christ. When we look at uh, his crying out, I thirst, John 19, it was prophesied in Psalm 22. Uh, when you look at the fact that, uh, you know, we read this morning in John 19, that no bone of his was broken. Okay, and it says these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. And that's again, prophesied in Psalm 34. So we find that all of these things, now, now the reason, you know, all of these things were prophesied, everything about how Christ should die and all the detail was all prophesied. And I, I want to bring this out, not, not to, you know, to say, oh, wow, look at the Bible, it's so wonderful. You know, it's all these prophecies made thousands of years ago, they get fulfilled. Um, uh, yes, that's all true, okay? But, but what's the real point of this, right? What is the real significance of this? You know, what this tells us is that, you know, Jesus coming, Jesus dying, you know, on the cross was not just some afterthought, okay? God, through thousands of years, had been planning it. You know, he called out Abraham. He called out a people. He, he preserved the, the, the lineage, the race of the tribe of Judah. He prophesied all these things. He sent his prophets, even as they were talking to the people about what was going on in, in history at that time. He was telling them, uh, you know, they were the prophets of prophesying all these things that would happen. Christ means that, you know, and, and why, why did God do this? You know, because he loved you and I. You know, he did this. You know, the fact that Jesus came to die was no accident. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't something that just came in the mind of God. It was something that had been planned and executed to perfection through thousands and thousands of years of history. And let that, let that sink in. You know, the fact that God loves you and me so much that that he put in place this plan and he ensured that you know through the acts of men simple men he brought about the event of the crucifixion of the lord jesus christ you know and so we find here at this point you know we have the lord jesus christ is crucified and i love the words of that song that we sang there in the ground his body lay light of the world by darkness lay that's where we are. You know, he was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. In the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness lay. But lo and behold, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave, he rose again. Hallelujah. Such an important thing. It's the most important thing, you know, to the Christian faith. You see, if the story had ended here, right before this point, again, Jesus would have just been a great teacher that was that was crucified. Okay, he would be no different. He would be still in the grave today. The resurrection of Christ is the most important thing for our Christian faith. And I just want to go through uh, go through a few points here. Uh, yeah, six points why 
The resurrection of Christ is so important. And we find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so let's go there. 1 Corinthians 15. I'm not going to talk about what happened on the resurrection day. We read that. You all know that. You know, I want to talk about the significance and the importance of the resurrection to us, right? That's what we want to focus on. So uh, 1 Corinthians 15, please read this at your leisure, but I'll just pick out a few words. The first point, you know, if Christ did not rise from the dead, preaching Christ would be senseless, okay? So 1 uh, Corinthians 15, verse 14, Paul says, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, okay? Our preaching is empty. And second point is that uh, he goes on to say, and your faith is also empty. You see, what, what are we believing in if Christ never rose from the dead? What are we preaching if Christ never rose from the dead? The third point we find in verse 15. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that you raised up Christ. So he's saying that, you know what, if Christ did not rise from the dead, then me, Paul, all the apostles, all the witnesses, all the preachers of the resurrection, we would be liars. I would be a liar. Here talking to you if Christ did not rise from the world. The entire gospel message would be a lie. And then number four, you know, if uh, uh, in verse 17 it says, uh, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If Christ did not rise from the dead, then no one would be redeemed. The, the resurrection is what signified his victory over sin. It's the fact that, you know, when God raised him up on the third day, it signified that God was saying, I have accepted your sacrifice for the sins of mankind. And if, he, if God did not, was not satisfied, he wouldn't have resurrected him. And that's why the resurrection is so important. It signified his victory over sin. Without that victory, we are still in our sins and we are not redeemed. And then verse 18, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So if Christ is not raised from the dead, all the former believers who have died, you know how we, we meet, we have these memorial, you know, services and funerals and we, we, we you know, we're all, um, you know, the message we give out is we are going to see them again one day, they're going to rise from the dead. All of that would be, you know, would be absolute nonsense. All the former believers without the resurrection, uh, this life is it, there's nothing more. Their sins would not be forgiven. They are not going to rise from the dead. And then number six, verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. So he's saying that, you know, if Christ not rise from the dead, Christians would be the most pitiable people on earth. There is no point trying to live a holy and righteous life on earth if there is no resurrection. There is not another life. If this life is all there is, then what's the point? What's the point of coming here every Sunday? What's the point of reading the word? What's the point of praying? What's the point of trying to be sanctified? What, what's the point of any of that? You know, we make so many, we, at least we think of them as sacrifices and endure much in anticipation of the life to come. What a pity if there is no life hereafter. The resurrection of Christ is the most important thing in the Christian world, in the, in the Christian faith. And that's why it should be important to us and we need to understand it. Now, what was the, when we go further in, in 1 Corinthians 15, we find the consequences of Christ's resurrection. What are the consequences? Verse 20 to 23. Now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the... As in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. And verse 23, but each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. So what's the first consequence is this, praise God. Thank God that he did rise from the dead, that he is no longer in the grave, that the grave is empty. We will rise again one day as Christ did, praise God. Christ is the first fruits of all those who will rise from the dead. His resurrection gives us this glorious hope. Second, second point, verse 42 of 1 Corinthians uh, 15. Yeah, verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. We will put on a glorious resurrection body, praise God. Our corrupt bodies, our body of sin, our body of illness, our body of, uh, of um, you know, uh, that, that's, that's constantly tempted 
uh, and falls into sin, our corrupt body will be replaced with an incorrupt body. No more sickness, no more ravages of sin, no more decay. We will get a new body. Why? Because Christ was resurrected. And then the third point, verse 54, uh, chapter 15, 1 Corinthians, verse 54. Yeah, so when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the last point is that we will have a final victory over sin. You know, and think about this. You know, every time you are tempted to sin, every time you fall into sin, this happens in the life of a believer. Just think about that eternal state that God has promised for you, that Christ has purchased for you by his death and his resurrection, that you will have victory and sin will no longer have dominion over you and over me. We will be freed from the very presence of sin. We have been freed from the penalty of sin. We are being freed from the power of sin and we will be freed for sure from the, uh, the power of sin. And let's look at one more aspect here, which is, well, what does that mean for us? How should we live? And Paul talks about that here in verse 58 of 1 Corinthians 15. He says, be steadfast. Therefore, my beloved brethren, therefore what? There, because Christ has died and he has resurrected. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Be steadfast, be movable, always abound in the work of the Lord. Steadfast in the faith. Hold on to your faith in the face of difficult times. Do not give up. Be immovable. Don't be shaken. Be unshakable. Don't let the momentary troubles of this life move you away from living for the Lord and abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Sometimes you might think that way. What I'm doing here, nobody's, nobody cares. Nobody pays attention. Nothing is happening. I'm not seeing any results. No. Abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Nothing that we do for Christ in this life is in vain. We will receive the eternal glory and reward. Go to Galatians 6, 9 and 10. I'm not going to read, read it now, but, but it tells us about the eternal glory and the eternal reward that we will receive if we are faithful servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thing. How should we live in the light of Christ's return? Be steadfast, be immovable and abound in the work of the Lord. And you know, what we see here is the elements of the resurrection life, right? And um, it's such a beautiful thing. You know, in Romans 6, let me just go there and uh, this will be the last verse I read and I'll stop in a few minutes here. But Romans chapter 6, you know, gives us this beautiful picture of the resurrection life. Okay, let me just read this. Romans 6 verse 3 to 6. Or do you not know that as many as of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the, we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him and that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. What is the resurrection life? First of all, it's a life of forgiveness. You know, you have full forgiveness. That full forgiveness is available. It's been purchased by the blood of Christ on the cross. It's a life of regeneration. At the moment that you believe, that you trust, that the moment that you trust in Christ, you know, you have been made into a new creature in the eyes of God. Once you were dead in sin, now you are alive in Christ. That's what he's talking about here. You know, just as Christ died, you, the old you, the old me, died in Christ and you were buried with Christ and you have been regenerated just as Christ came up on the third day. You have been regenerated. That's what we picture in, in, in baptism when we immerse somebody in the water and we bring them back up. What are we saying? Nothing happens to them. They're the same person that went in. They came up, they're a little wet. That's it. Okay? But what is it doing? It's, it's symbolic. 
You know, it's saying that I died with Christ. I was buried with Christ. The old me is gone. And behold, there is a new me resurrected with Christ who seeks to live for him. I have been regenerated. The resurrection life is a life of regeneration. Third, it's a life of sanctification. That's what happens from the moment I am saved to the moment that I die or Christ returns, whichever comes first, I am being sanctified. I am growing in spiritual maturity. I am becoming more like Christ. That should be your experience and my experience. Number four, uh, you know, the, li- the, the resurrection life is a life of a guaranteed coming resurrection. First Thessalonians 4, 16, 17, I'm not going to read it, but it says there that, Behold, the trump of God shall sound and, and, and Christ will descend and the dead in Christ shall rise. Hallelujah. The dead in Christ shall rise and those who, of us who are left behind, we will be caught up with him in the air. Oh, what a glorious thing. That is the resurrection life. That is what you and I who have this resurrection life can look forward to. And then finally, it's a life of peace. You know, go read Revelation 21, 1 to 4. You know, it talks about the new Jerusalem. What a beautiful place. What a peaceful place. Living in the presence of our creator forever in our glorified state. That's what we have to look forward to. And you know, I wanted to point this out because, I, you know, I think sometimes in our, in, our, um, you know, in our humanness, we lose sight of this. We lose sight of who we are. We lose sight of what we have to look forward to. You know, this is what the resurrection of Christ has bought, has, has, has allowed for you and I. Forgiveness, regeneration, sanctification, uh, resurrection, and a life of peace forever, for all eternity. So the question, you know, the question is this, okay? The Christ came, he died, he was resurrected, he ascended up into heaven, but he's coming again. The first time he came as a savior, the next time he's going to come as the judge. Are you ready? Are you ready? He's returning. Do you want your sins to be forgiven? Do you want, if anybody here, you know, you heard a wonderful gospel message yesterday. Think back to that. You know, if any of you have not had your sins forgiven, if your life has not, you have not committed your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, if, if you want your life to be transformed, if you want to lose your fear of death, if you want to look forward to this eternal life, to this resurrection life that I talk about, if you want to be at peace with your creator God, then admit that you are a sinner separated from God. Come to God in repentance. Believe that Jesus died on the cross and he paid the penalty for your sins. And trust in his work, in the work of Christ. In Christ alone do we have salvation. Commit your life to him. He will declare you righteous and he will begin the work of changing you. And although I said I was done reading, I'll read one more verse. Promise, last one. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now I recognize that most of you are already saved, you know, but I know there might be some here that are really not. Okay? Uh, and the worst thing that can happen to you is to live your life thinking that you belong to Christ and then finding out that you're not. So for all of you, are you ready? Have you truly trusted in Christ? But for all of the rest of us who already have that assurance of salvation, are you ready? Am I ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? What should I do? You know, it says here, it talks about the the work of Christ. It said the Lord Jesus Christ in verse uh, verse 2, he says that we should look unto Jesus, okay, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him. What was that joy? Okay, That joy that was set before him was you and I. You know, it's like God told him, you know, Jesus, my son, look, look at all these people. You know, they're going to become my children. That's the joy. Okay, the joy that was set before him, what did he do? He endured the cross. He despised the shame. And therefore, God has exalted him. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, God loves us. You know, God, the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself. He despised the shame for you and me. And so what should you and I do? 
lay aside every weight and, and, and the sin which so easily entangles us and run with endurance the race that is set before us. You know, we are in this life to run the race that God has set for us, a race of service, a race of, of sanctification, a race of, of growing into maturity with Christ. And if we're not making progress on that race, then we need to examine ourselves and ask ourselves, are, are we ready for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? May God enable us to, to do this. And, uh, you know, I, I was going to sing a song, but I'll, I'll pass on that because I've taken a little extra time. Uh, let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you, Lord, for, for, this, uh, for this wonderful Savior that we have. Our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to thank you that he died on the cross, that he rose again the third day. And Lord, thank you for showing us from your word all the wonderful things that are ours, all the treasures that are ours because he died and because he rose again. And to to think, Father, that he did it for us. Lord, how much we owe you, Father. How much we owe our Lord Jesus Christ to live our lives in service to him. Lord, rekindle the love we have, Lord. Pray that our appreciation of what Christ has done for us, of the reality of his resurrection would, would, would drive each of us, Father, to examine ourselves, to live for him, to commit to living our lives for him in the days to come. Lord God, we thank you again for this time. I thank you for everyone here, everyone listening online. I pray, Lord, that each and every person might be touched by your word today and might be moved to, to uh, make changes in their life, Lord, to draw closer to you, to grow in Christ-like maturity and to serve you as faithful stewards. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen.